We are in a series called Legends and Misfits, and we've been tracing these Old Testament uh, figures. We started with Abraham, and then we did Joseph, and uh, then we did Moses, and then we did Joshua and Caleb, and then last week we did Ruth and sort of Naomi and also Boaz. And unfortunately, or fortunately maybe, the most memorable line from last week might have been the, the big reveal at the end of the book of Ruth that Ruth is King David's great-grandmother is a little bit like Darth Vader saying to Luke, I am your father. Um, but, um, but, but that leads us right where we are to today, where we are going to talk about David. And in fact, we'll be talking about David for the next um, two Sundays beyond this and look at different angles of David's life. Why so much time on David? Um, for one reason, the Bible spends a lot of time on David. We actually know more about David's life biographically uh, than we do any other character. Um, obviously, we've got four Gospels, four perspectives on the life of Christ, but from a, in terms of the length of his life, biographical information, we don't know a ton. Um, we, we know about his birth. We know there was this thing that happened in the synagogue when he was 12, and then fast forward, he's getting baptized and being anointed and crucified and ascending, and wow! Um, but David, we, we meet David as a young boy. We see David as a winning this, this most famous battle that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we, we see David as a fugitive, which we'll talk about, I think, next week. Or sorry, next, not, not the week after that. Next week will be a, a free topic. We're going to talk about communion next week. Um, and then there's David as the king. And then we, we know a lot about David as an older man, as he's dealing with his sons and, and rebellion in his household and, and all of this stuff. So again, when, when you look at the life of David, it's easy to pick a few things and to say, okay, this guy is who we want to be like, and this is sort of the guy. I mean, if you were going to develop um, um, uh, maybe uh, your prototypical, maybe this is God's idea of masculinity or whatever, most people sort of gravitate towards David. Um, I, for one, think that the Scripture is full of different pictures of what it looks like to be a man or a woman of, uh, who follows the Lord. But, but what this series reminds us about is that legends and misfits... There are things about David's life that we want to praise and that we want to say, wow. And then there are things about David's life that we would rather hide. But just as last week we discovered, the Bible doesn't hide the family skeletons in the closet. It shouldn't have told us that the greatest king of Israel had a great-grandmother who was a Moabite woman who had this shady sort of scene about throwing herself at a dude's feet while he was sleeping. It shouldn't have told us all that, or didn't need to, I would say. But it does, and it does to tell us that God is at work in things even as they are. That doesn't mean there's not a way things ought to be. It just means that as we walk in life and we say, look, this is how we want to be and this is how we want our homes to be, there's also this comfort in saying, okay, but what if you find yourselves in these situations that are less than ideal? What if you... You know, it's, it's, it's like David saying in one of the Psalms, I'm a man of peace, but all I, I, I'm surrounded by war around me. Well, what if, what if you find yourselves in these situations? You think, I, I didn't choose this, but there's a giant bearing down on us. How does God work in the midst of that? So this evening, as we explore, we're going to look at the mo- one of the most famous moments in David's life. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can flip over there. And, and it is... The highest point, really, in many ways of David's life. Now, obviously, from this moment, he goes on and becomes king and he unites the tribes and it's amazing. But you might say that it all began here. This is 
where it all started. This is David and Goliath. And so uh, when, when, we, when we think about this story, um, we tend to see ourselves in David. We tend to see ourselves in our strongest moments on our best days. We think, yeah, that's, that's us. That's who we are. We're, we're fearless and we face down giants. And then sometimes on our worst days, we feel like David, as, as on, maybe at, the, 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 at Ziklag, after they'd been uh, defeated and, and his men want to stone him and everybody wants to turn against him. So there's lots about David's life because there's high highs and low lows and everything in between, it seems like. There's lots about his life, lots of places for us to say, thank you, God, for including that in the Bible because that's me. That's where I fit in. So tonight, David the warrior. Turn with me, if you will, 1 Samuel 17. We're going to start in verse 8. This is um, a, a champion named uh, Goliath, and he's, he's um, taunting the Israelites. And he says, it says, He stopped and shouted to the Israelite troops, Why have you come and taken up battle formations? I am the Philistine champion, and you are Saul's servants. Isn't that right? Well, select one of your men and let him come down against me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will become your slaves. But if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our slaves and you will serve us. I insult Israel's troops today, the Philistine continued. Give me an opponent and we'll fight. When Saul and all Israel heard what the Philistines said, they were distressed and terrified. We don't often talk about this because um, maybe in our... Modern technological world, it's easier to mitigate suffering, and so it's easy to forget that there actually is an enemy. Um, I, I wonder sometimes if, amidst all of the painkiller stuff, and, and thank God for Advil, you know, whatever, but maybe amidst all of that, there's this sort of numbing that goes on that, that we try to say to ourselves, you know what, everything's okay. We don't need to, everything's fine. There really isn't a battle. There really isn't an enemy. There really isn't anyone intimidating us. But the truth is, even as believers, we know this. There is an enemy. There is an adversary, the accuser. Satan, we sort of sometimes think of as this proper noun, like it's his name. It may or may not be, but the idea is it's, he's the accuser. There is a person who is, who's main goal in life is to accuse and be adversarial toward you. Did you know that? I know you did because some of you are like, yeah, tell me about it. That's the kind of week I've had, you know. Yeah, I have an accuser. He's called my boss, you know. No, no, no. Look beyond this now. And so even as we start to look at this text and we say, okay, so so Goliath becomes this figure that represents for us the, the, the one who opposes God's people. The one who uses intimidation to say, who are you? How can you fight me? I'm the champion. And he hurls insults and says, look, it'll never work. It's not good enough. It's not all that different than the voice of the serpent in the garden that says to Eve, hey, did God really say? Sort of insinuating insults. If we're honest, probably most of the time when we face um, difficult moments, There's this voice somewhere that's telling us things about life and about you, or maybe, worse yet, insinuating things about God. And probably when we've made the decisions that we've regretted the most, we would say, you know what, 
It's because I didn't really believe that God was who he is. It's because I just sort of thought that, ah, this is the, no, and I got scared, and I got, you know. Honestly, a lot of times, even in, in marriages, our worst fights come because there's this deep fear inside, and someone's just said something that rubs up against the fear. And you need to almost take a time out and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is it you're afraid of that could happen here? Because what you're reacting to is strong. But all I was saying is, let's get Chinese food. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, 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 and it's a moment to say, you know what? There are these fears. There are these things that, that says to me, I'm afraid that you're going to leave. Or I'm afraid that, that this isn't going to work. I'm afraid that I don't really, I'm not going to make something of my life. Or I, I'm kind of afraid that this marriage isn't going to work. I'm afraid of... And there behind that fear is this towering adversary that says... Your God's nothing. I'm the champion. You got nothing. And it's as old as time. The tactic of the enemy to accuse and intimidate. And it goes on, and, and, and of course, we're, you know, probably a lot of you are familiar with this story. Uh, you've probably heard it several times, but David comes along. He's not supposed to be at the battle, but, but um, he's bringing food to his brothers. And then he says, hey, who's that guy? Who's the big dude? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's, nobody's going to fight him and all of this stuff. And, uh, and David sort of says, um, you know, you kind of skip down through the story, and he says, look, come on, isn't there a cause? Is there not a cause? Who's going to stand up to this guy? And his brothers are like, oh, David, you're just trying to, you know, what do you do? Get out of here, you know, and he says, no, look, I'll fight him. Did I ask the wrong question? I mean, come on, I'll fight him. And in verse 32, David's now talking to Saul, and he says, don't let anyone lose courage because of this Philistine. I love this. Don't lose courage. Don't let the courage go out from you. I, your servant, will go out and fight him. You can't go out and fight this Philistine, Saul answered David. You are still a boy, but he's been a warrior since he was a boy. And David says, oh yeah, well let me tell you what I've been since I was a boy. Your servant has kept his father's sheep, David replied to Saul. And right about now Saul's saying, yeah, that, that's kind of my point. It's like you're a shepherd. And if a lion, if ever a lion or a bear came and carried off one of the flock, I would go after it, strike it, and rescue the animal from its mouth. If it turned on me, I would grab it at its jaw. I don't know if this is the equivalent of a fish story or if this is David saying, come on, man, strike it and kill it. Your servant has fought both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he has insulted the army of the living God. Can I tell you that the thing that motivates us toward victory is not our own gain, but God's fame? David's not thinking, look, I'll fight him because then we can have lands and we can be free and we can have prosperity. The thing that gets under David's skin is he said, this guy's insulting my God. What the enemy does is he's insinuating every lie of the devil is really an insult against God. It insinuates that God is not enough. It insinuates that God cannot care for you. It insinuates that God has not made a way. And David says, I can't can't take that. No, look. And then he tells these stories. And David added, the Lord who rescued me from the power of both lions and bears will rescue me from the power of the Philistine. 
I want, the first thing I want us to, say, to see from this story, and there's obviously a million sermons that have been and will be preached from this text, so I won't say it all. But the first thing, and there's, there's three. The first is this, that God works with where we are. And what I mean by that is for David, the first victory he experienced was with a lion and a bear. And then it was a giant. Some of us are... Um, young and full of zeal and passion and wanting to take on huge giants and says, you know, I'm going to end this. And you you sort of think, I'm going to take on this and that. And I think that's wonderful. But sometimes the curse of big dreams is that you ignore the little battles right here. Sometimes the unintended downside of saying, God, we're going to win a great victory together is that you postpone it for the someday. Is that you say, well, okay, well, one day, if we ever had a Goliath, I'll know just what to do. Thanks for this talk, Glenn. And what I want to say is, actually, there are pretty good odds that there's little lions and bears right here, right now. Where are the little battles even in the moment? Where are the little battles in your workplaces? Where, where are the little places maybe in your own heart. Where are the, the, the little places where there is this adversarial voice that you can say, no, 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 that's not how it works. And it's easy to talk about um, caring for the masses. It's easy to talk about loving the lost. But it's difficult to see what's really right in front of you. A few weeks ago, I, um, in preparation for this whole downtown thing, which I'll say more about next week, because um, we'll have more time, um, I, I, was at, I, I was at the home of, uh, of a couple of young guys that live downtown. I don't know if any of you are here, but, but they had a gathering and invited several other uh, young people, and we started talking about some of these questions about church and what it means to be the people of God in our day uh, and in this city. And... Um, Several of them spoke very passionately about saying, look, I would love to see us be able to love what evangelicals generally have sort of considered the unlovable. Um, and, and, you know, talked about uh, maybe the homeless or, or the ones who have um, a different sexual orientation or, or, or sort of pro um, uh, the, the, the homosexual lifestyle. And, 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 and these young people say, look, it would be so great if we could love those people. And that they could come to church and you know, not, not feel judged and all this stuff. And it was like, yeah, it's wonderful. And then as the conversation went on, um, someone asked me, so Glenn, how do you feel about the fact that you're starting a, a new life downtown, but you live in Briargate? And I said, you know, well, my answer to that will probably change over time a little bit. But for now, how I feel about that is this isn't a church for only for people downtown. This is a church that gathers downtown, but that gathers from all over. And it occurred to me that perhaps it's easier to love the Goliath figure, this, oh, the unlovable, we've got it yet. But there's more prejudice towards the family in the suburbs. And one of them said that, said, you know, I think for us, like, it's a badge of honor to love a homeless dude. But we really, our real prejudice is against, like, People who shop at Target. (laughs) 
I know, you can't imagine that people have prejudice against people who shop at Target. But. And the issue is, there are, there are these things, even right here, right now, and we tend to only think of the big. Oh, I'm gonna, th- th- we're going to do this and we're going to conquer that. Instead of realizing, you know what? There's an enemy at work even now. What are you doing with him? What are you doing with this little itty-bitty prejudice? Oh, well, I mean, that's nothing. I'm going to conquer the big injustice. What about the little injustice? I'm going to care for the... This is wonderful. Do you know you were really rude to that gal behind the counter? What gal? Exactly. I mean, this is the stuff where we want to slay giants, but we're unwilling to see the lion and the bear right here, right now. This is why I am not a fan of talking about people in terms of categories and labels. I, I don't like saying the lost or the orphan or the poor or the home. I, I don't like any of that because it prevents you from seeing Jim, Kimberly. It prevents you from seeing people, every person with a name, with a story. Goliath, that's all, it's symbolic. It's the big giant, the big bad. Yeah, we're going to get that. But you can't wrap your arms around that. You don't get there unless you love and rescue and deal with what's right here. Does that make sense? You don't change the world. You begin to act right here, right now in ways that speak of Christ. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's an aspect of this that God works with where we are. The story goes on, and, and Saul's pretty concerned for David, and so he says, hey, dude, I've got this armor back here. I'm kind of a big deal, and you should try it. And so verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own gear, putting on a, a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head, and David strapped his sword on over the armor, but he couldn't walk around well because he'd never tried it before. It's like a junior high kid putting football pads on for the first time, you know. It's like, Is this supposed to be like this? I can't walk in this, David told Saul, because I've never tried it before. So he took them off, and he he then grabbed his staff and chose five smooth stones from the stream bed, and he put them in the pocket of his shepherd's bag, and with sling in hand, went out to the Philistine. What I want to say about this is, is fairly straightforward. God works with who you are. God works with where you are, in the little battles, the little moments, right here, right now. But God also works with who you are. I love um, conferences and I appreciate them and I've both attended as a participant and spoken and taught at conferences. Sometimes the difficulty of conferences is it's difficult to not give people a one-size-fits-all sort of answer. It's difficult to resist the temptation to say, let me tell you how to fix your life and your family and your marriage. and your The best conferences to me are the ones where people say, Here's what we've done. Here's what we see the Bible saying. Here's how that's looked for us. This may look a little different for you, right? But the tendency, and, and I, the kinds of conferences I usually find myself around are church conferences or pastor conferences. And, and forgive me for this, but sometimes they're the worst. Because, because you have these guys who said, well, this is what I did, and my church is 10,000 people. What you got? And so it, it sort of reeks a little bit, and it reeks a little bit of Saul's armor. Uh, it reeks a little bit of saying, look, this is how you do it, man. If you just do this and just do this, it'll work this way. 
And I think there's something about the way God works with us that is so deeply personal. That's not the same as saying it's all relative. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God is who God is, but He works with who you are, with the strengths you have, with the giftings you have. There may be situations, you know what, I could never do it quite that way, but I want to get to where you're saying, I just want to go a different way. And sometimes we'll say, well, that may work, that may not work, but let's, let's try this out. So for all of that, say, so, well, there's, there's, there's these battles in our lives and, and we really want to get to this place where we have freedom or victory over this. And someone says, okay, well, the answer for you is, you know, this, this fast or this thing. And so, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try that. And I, I don't know. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes my, my sermons are not very practical. I, I know that. But one of the reasons, there are many reasons why they're not. Uh, one of them is my own weaknesses. But, but, but one of the reasons is that I don't know your story fully. And I don't want to be the role of the Holy Spirit in you. I don't want to be the person that says, okay, so let me tell you exactly what you should do. My job is to say, here's who God is. And here's what God wants to do in our lives. Now, would you pay attention to how the Holy Spirit is shaping and directing you? And it's a lot more difficult because it actually means that you've got something to do here. That's a bummer, isn't it? Wouldn't it be easier if I had all the answers? Wouldn't it be easier if I could tell you the six keys to a better life? I don't have them. But the Spirit of God is working in you and in me. And He's breathing His Word in you. So I proclaim Christ and I trust that the Spirit of God will, will convict you. And, say, and you'll, you'll drive home and you say, you know what? I think my Goliath is... Oh, I think my... And and you're finding the way that God is working with who you are. Does that make sense? Two of you, thank you. (laughs) The last one, verse 45. But David told the Philistine, you are coming against me with sword, spear, and scimitar, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel's army. David's not a dude just looking for a fight. He's not like some angry young man. Today the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will feed your dead body and the dead bodies of the entire Philistine camp to the wild birds and the wild animals. Okay, David. Then the whole world will know that there is a God on Israel's side and all those gathered here will know that the Lord... Okay, this is the verse. All those gathered here will know that the Lord does not save by means of the sword and spear. Wait, 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 what? This is a fight, right? There's a war, right? The Lord doesn't save by means of sword and spear. The Lord owns this war and He will hand all of you over to us. This is maybe the most difficult thing of all the three points for us to grasp. God wins in a different way. Yeah, God works with where you are, and yeah, God works with who you are, but God wins in a different way. He doesn't save by sword or spear, 
he will hand over the enemies to David, says. The reason the Messiah is called the son of David is because Israel began to hope that one day there would be another man who could represent them as a nation and fight a great battle against God's enemies on their behalf. The reason the gospel writers believe that Jesus was the son of David was because that's what he did. Jesus came. How could Jesus, on behalf of the people of God, fight a great victory, a great battle against God's enemies? Because that's what Messiah is supposed to do. That's what David did. And Jesus, the son of David, quote unquote, comes and on behalf of the people of God wins the battle once for all against the enemies of God. But hold on. He didn't kill the Romans. Wait just a minute. He told Peter to put away the sword. Now hang on a second. He was killed. How is that a victory? Because when you fight violence with violence, death wins. But when you come and you say, I will take on myself the sting of all that is evil in the world. I I chose the J.B. Phillips translation of that verse in Colossians because it says that Jesus drained the poison out of the enemy. I love that image. What's the worst thing you could imagine? What's the worst day in history? Was it Pearl Harbor? Was it 9-11? What was the worst day in history? The worst day in history was when the Son of God was nailed on a cross because some religious leaders colluded with some empire leaders and crucified the Son of God. That is the worst day in the history of the world. That's Jesus saying, bring your worst. Bring it. Saying to the enemy, what you got? Bring it. And the snake bites and Jesus drains the poison out of it and says, all right, I've got it. It's on me. If you fight violence with violence, death wins. But if what Jesus said is true, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Then when God Raise Jesus from the dead. Death is defeated. It's only that way. It's only that way. God wins in a different way. This is the most, ought to be the most convicting thing about this. David still has this battle and there's a, we love the battle scene but you've got to look at the Scripture as a, as a bit of a trajectory and see where does this David story come to its fullness? Well, it comes to its fullness in Christ. And Christ wins in a different way. Jesus triumphs, but not in the way that you expect. He doesn't triumph by power and abuse and manipulation and, 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 and bullying. Jesus triumphs by sacrificial love. He wins, but He wins in a different way. That's remarkable. 
because we follow this crucified God and yet we want to fight in our own way. You don't win in your marriages by learning how to manipulate each other. You learn by learning how to lay down your lives for each other. You don't win as parents by finding a way to exercise power. You win as parents by finding a way to serve. First Christians were a remarkable threat to the Romans. Not because Christianity was such a strange religion. Look, they were the Romans. There were lots of strange religions that they were just fine with. Why were the Romans so unsettled by Christians? Because they did not fear death. Death is the weapon of the world. Death is the weapon of the tyrant. Death is the weapon of the one who says, do this or else. But what happens when you say that and a group of Christians say, okay. Every parent hates that day when your three-year-old or your four-year-old gets old enough and smart enough and say, listen, if you don't listen, you won't, won't have ice cream tonight. Okay. Oh. Now what? Honey, we need a new consequence, you know. Love and logic. We need another choice here. What's the choice? You know? Rome ran out of options because death was no threat. Because they knew the one who had conquered death by choosing to die for us. Can I encourage you with something that's maybe a little touchy? Okay? Just put your big boy pants on, big girl pants on. You, you, you all have strong convictions about this political season. And there's a famous quote that says, those with strong convictions are not often very civil. And those who are very civil often don't have much con many convictions. And so the question is always, how do you have convictions and yet be nice about it? I see Facebook. Not during Lent, but I see Facebook. And there's a whole lot of meanness going around. There's a whole lot of bullying going on. There's a whole lot of name-calling going on. There's a whole lot of labels being thrown out. Labels that I don't think any of us in this room really know much about. You may believe in your cause, but we don't win this way. We don't win this way. You can't separate the cross from the way you think about your citizenship role Otherwise, your party is your God. But that's not true. Christ is our God. But if the crucified God is your Lord, then you've got to think about how you win your battles in a different way. Bullying, intimidation, fear tactics, mudslinging, name-calling, you're, you're better than that. That's not how you beat whoever you think Goliath is in this. Okay? Can I say that? Is that all right to say? Whatever your party is, whoever your person is, do it. Bless you. Be nice. God wins in a different way. The most beautiful thing about seeing ourselves in the David and Goliath story is not 
really seeing ourselves as David, but seeing, our, seeing Jesus as David. Because when David wins, guess what the rest of the Israelites do? All right, well, let's go. It's over. Let's go get him. That, that's what this is like. You don't fight your individual battles from a place of striving. You fight your battles from a place of victory. Did you know that? That's a funny thing to kind of hold on to, but, but whether it's an addiction or, or, or this issue or that issue, depression or pornography, you're not fighting from a place of, I'm alone and it's me against the devil. It's you're in Christ and he's conquered the devil. He's conquered the darkness. That doesn't mean there's no, there's, there's, there's fights to be had for sure. But your, your war is first of all not against flesh and blood. And secondly, it's from a place of victory. Imagine what that would do to the way you think about it. The fears, the lies, the stuff you're wrestling with. Imagine if you could just picture for a moment, Jesus, I'm in you and you've won. Jesus, I'm in you, and you've won. How does that change everything? We're going to end tonight by coming to the table of the Lord and coming to take communion. And we're going to do that because it's a wonderful way to end the service, especially a sermon like this because it's not, all right, everybody, go slay Goliath. It's, hey, everybody, Christ has won. Jesus is the victor, and you are in Him. So when those voices come and those lies come and those issues come, you can say, all right, God, thank you that you work with me right where I am. Thank you that you work with me with who I am and who we are. Thank you that you're leading us to a place of victory, but you will show me how to win in a different way. Not by power and bullying, different way. Let's pray.